0: natural disaster this is like a bomb has just hit this town it's you know chernobyl and i don't think at that moment people understood that and and even now i don't think some people understand reality is we came about because no one was doing a job that someone is being paid to do you know we shouldn't exist unfortunately we've gone from not from not from that we shouldn't exist to we're leading This whole thing, and while that's great that we've done it, it's upsetting and almost scary that we are doing it.
1: Today on Changemakers, we're in Batemans Bay on the south coast of New South Wales. This is part two of our story about the Australian bushfires in the summer of 2019, the worst fires on record. The beachside community of Batemans Bay faced one of the most extreme fires. How did they unite to rebuild their town when government and charities failed them? Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. The interviews in today's episode were undertaken in January 2020 by our reporter, Mark Isaacs, who also wrote the episode.
2: I'm Zoe and I live on the South Coast and I'm very lucky because I survived the bushfire without any damage to my home or my properties.
1: Zoe's partner is Diane, who lives in one of the small inlets around there called Malua Bay.
3: It was quite traumatic to see what had helped happen to my area where I live. Everyone here is, is quite still in shock.
2: Can you describe Spatman's Bay? For the locals say, why would you live anywhere yeah, else when you right. can make <laughs> this way? Um... It's lovely. It's a really temperate climate. It's got Mm -hmm. one of the nicest climates. I think it's seventh most temperate climate in the Mm -hmm. world or something. Mm -hmm. And you've got beautiful beaches everywhere and you've got, well, you did have nice bush around you.
3: Beaches Um, and bush, yeah.
2: Yeah,
1: there's a bit of bush left. Batemans Bay didn't have a renegade group of firefighters like we heard about in the last episode in Wollongby. But they still had the same problem. The official services were stretched beyond breaking point. Like in Woolloomby,
2: members of the community stepped up. He helps a lot of people. He's that kind of a guy. Um, He pulled a man out of a burning house down the road. His name is Garnet. I
4: was coming home one Sunday evening and I'd been out with some friends and I get up to the end of Casey's booth, and there was a fire in the front yard of this guy's house. I'd never been there. I never met him, but I knew he's an old man because a friend of mine used to visit with him, Mr. Willis. He's in nineties. It was a strong wind that night, and it was just roaring again against his house. So he's a garden hose hooked up, and I grabbed it. And I didn't have time to ring or do anything with the phone, so just squirting this thing out. No, nah, the coppers arrived as I was still getting the last of it out, and they went in and pulled the old man out and I helped him carry him out in the grass then and ambos come and they took him away. Died next day, unfortunately.
1: With the fire bearing down on the region, Garnet got in his car and started calling on friends. One of them was Frida.
4: And she had the cat and the dog and the bird in cages and, and she was in no great hurry but you could, when I went up, I could see it, it was only minutes away from her place. So we got her downstairs in a car and chuffed her off towards where these people were. The police were running around and the fire engines running around and back and forward. And, but they were limited to what they could do. By the time they set up the hoses, it was gone past them. So they were going up and down these streets near Frieda's with a funny siren I never heard before. It sounds like it was an evacuation siren. And they're running, they're knocking on doors, out, 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 everyone go, go, go. Frieda had gone and I was ready to hose the place down, they wouldn't let me take it. He parked his truck opposite her house, but he decided, he just for
2: each split second made him think, don't leave the truck there, it's a stupid place to leave it, so he moved the truck onto the other side and went and got her and got her into the truck, and as that happened, that where he had been parked just went into a ball of flame.
4: When you actually see some of the fires they, they seem to create a vortex, their own little private tornado, and there's big pools of molten um, aluminium from the engine block, and the wheels lying on the ground. Just molten aluminium, just streams of it. Cool now. That's uh, the intensity of, of the fire. It's total annihilation where it just roared down.
1: Frida was close to losing her home, but her neighbour Violet was even closer.
3: I took our fence down that, yeah. <laughs> in the shed, and burned all out the uh, mowers and the whippersnipper. How long have you lived here? Oh, 40
1: years.
3: 40 years? Yeah. yeah. Has it ever come that close? We've never seen a fire like that. Yeah. <laughs> Gun
1: sent Frida to the evacuation centre. Zoe and Diane had already decamped there.
3: We looked outside and the traffic was just bumper to bumper all, all evacuating and I said if we don't get in the queue we're going to be stuck here anyway so we decided to go down to the eva- evacuation centre. I had nothing packed, I had coolers in my hair and a pair of thongs and I just left and came down here. I don't know how people really decide. I mean
2: every time I left I kept thinking am I going to be sorry I left or Am I going to be glad I left because, you know, you don't want to get caught in a fire but you also don't want
3: to lose your house because you weren't there to put out the little embers. It was a really hot day and everyone was, was just really tired and, and um, you know, they, everyone was a bit stunned, not knowing quite knowing what they were doing. On the drive-in, everyone was hosing their houses down, the ones closer to the bay. Um, we, it was so full that we parked outside the actual evacuation centre.
1: The evacuation centre was located at Hanging Rock, a sports complex with ovals and car parks. There was a small two-storey building which was full of people. Inside, there was no floor space. Those who had cars or caravans stayed in their vehicles. Red Cross volunteers were trying to organise everyone, but it was
3: chaos. How many, how many people do you think were in there? Oh, Thousands
2: and that was where you would go to register, but no-one was doing registration. It was, it was impossible to deal with that many people, so they had an area where they were making food and, and the Red Cross women were trying, sort of taking things around to people. And Some people had gone and sh- sought shelter in the marine rescue uh, house, and it was the tiniest space, but we were with a friend whose daughter was heavily pregnant and needed oxygen, I think, in the end, but she was crook. So we took her there where they got the ambulance to come.
3: And then the fires came. We could smell smoke and then it went black, absolutely black, and people found it really hard to breathe. I gave out a couple of masks to people. The back
2: of the industrial estate was burning, mm. which was only a kilometre or mm. two kilometres away. I knew that smoke was fresh. It was really, we were really close to the fire. Mm. I knew that. Mm. But there was nowhere to go. Mm. And you couldn't, everyone couldn't leave at the same time. So you kind of had to wait there. Mm. Obviously, people were scared. They were just all sitting on the stairs holding their children. Most of them had little children in there. But that was horrible. That was really awful to see people so afraid. Mm. They're all just sitting there in silence.
1: The problem was, once the fires had passed and the residents were allowed to return to their homes, they found a region completely decimated. Power is still out here and this beachside suburb is still smouldering.
4: Many have lost everything. I do gonna...
1: really believe it's going to happen to you. It's hard to show the scale of the destruction on the south coast. There's a deep worry though. The worst is yet to come. Leave Casman, ABC News, Batemans Bay. In total, the fire destroyed 176 homes along the south coast and killed eight people. Days later, when Zoe and Diana finally arrived home, they had no power.
2: The hard thing was that, of course, there'd been a lot of phone calls in and out, and we'd been looking for each other at the evacuation centre, so our phones are low already. The only way of charging was to get in the car and to drive around. There was no petrol. That was the other thing. You didn't want to drive around charging your phone everywhere because you're going to run out of petrol and you might have to evacuate again. So you had to really weigh up what you used, your small resources on. Of course, you're trying to um, eat things that are in the freezer that are going to go off. So mm. Di has a gas cooker at her place, so we'd go down there when it was light, cook up what was going,
3: you know, soft in the freezer. They went to the shop for supplies. Lowe's was open in town, and they said oh, yeah. people have no nothing. They've got only what they stand up in. So we opened so that they could get some clothing and then Kmart, had um, they'd open till their generators ran out because people literally had no clothes, nothing. They didn't have a lot of generators here. They had to get generators oh, in, and that took a little
2: out. while. The roads were blocked due to the fires, so transporting goods into the area was difficult. And I said to them, how are you getting the ice in? And they said, we've got a police escort because the road was closed for more than a week. There were police in the supermarket, mm. near the checkouts. I think just to stop people getting overwrought because it was as, almost as bad going into the supermarket. People were greeting each other and bursting into tears, and you know, there were really distressed people. Kisha's family were amongst the less fortunate.
1: Well, I've been trying to help my parents back on their feet because they lost their house. Burnt down in these fires. It came from three different directions from beside, in front, and behind. Mm. So there was no way of saving the house at all. Mm. The whole of Narraganda went up in flames. I think out of 30 houses, we got three. Saved three or lost three? Saved three. Wow. Keisha's family wasn't alone. With communications proving difficult in the regional area, the residents relied on local radio for updates.
2: We couldn't get TV. We could only get the radio. And it was battery radio. Mm. So it was really important. It was the only way we had of knowing what was going on. The ABC dedicated a channel to the far south coast for the fires and they just continuously updated us with who was evacu- needed to evacuate, where the evacuation centre was, where you could go to get things, what you needed. We would have been lost without it. It wasn't until the television came back on a week later
1: that Zoe and Di realised the scale of the devastation it was clear the community needed help. But what wasn't clear was when assistance would arrive and from whom. The first response came from individuals within the community.
2: We had refugees, we called them, um, evacuees come to stay in Di's house. She stayed here because there was a family who needed and I had people staying in the cottage because my guests hadn't, couldn't come and so we had people evacuated there. I'd said to a lot of people, if you need to come, I'm still standing, come. Local businesses,
1: like the local
2: summer circus, helped where they could. People were, evacua- were were using the area near the carnival as an evacuation centre. I think it was unofficial. The carnival were apparently, carnival people were very, very helpful and supportive and organised them drinks and food and things. They were like the dance band on the Titanic. Mm. They opened every night and <laughs> put the lights on, and you know, the odd few people would turn up. In town, an evacuation centre was established at McKay Park.
4: Anglicare disaster were in charge, or sure shared the, the responsibility. I don't know who they shared it with, but they seemed to doing it all. They're in, looking after the distribution of water and food at McKay Park.
1: The army stepped in to provide water, as local supplies had been contaminated. But there was a problem. Matthew Harcher was a local cafe worker.
0: I saw a truck dropping goods at uh, a local petrol station that had no power. And the driver, I sort of stopped to, to lend a hand, and the driver said, oh, there's a truck coming, he's 45 minutes behind me, and he's going to come here and drop more goods, and, people were like queuing up and they were almost fighting uh, cops had shown up to direct traffic and to get people in the queues for canned goods and nappies and things. So there are these massive spots all over the country where, where these donation drives are happening and they're still happening now. I mean, they'd already collected the goods and they were on a truck and the truck was already on its way to the region cause they knew we needed the goods quickly, but the truck had no destination. They just were sort of hitting evac center and evac center being turned away all the way down the coast until they found someone that would take it. And some of the drivers, because their logbooks were getting uh, it up and they only had so many hours, were sort of at the point where they were saying, well, I'm just going to have to drop it anywhere.
1: It sounds crazy. The supermarkets had empty shelves and at the same time, truckloads of donations were being turned away. What was going on?
0: I called the local council and their stance was uh, the trucks needed to turn around. They just didn't have the storage. Uh, the EBAC centers didn't have the storage either for these uh, donations that were coming in. And they didn't have the time for the logistics of, of taking it on either. When you're talking a regional center, you're talking to the local footy pitch. It's the local surf clubs. So the storage facilities might be just a closet. So they can only really hold at maximum, you know, four or five pallets at a time. And they've got people there. So they're completely at capacity. They, they, they're totally full. They turn the trucks away. So the trucks then know not to come back to that spot anymore. Two days later, they're out of food and they've got nowhere to go and there's no one to give them more food.
1: Why hadn't the government stepped in, or at least the charities in charge?
0: There was no organisation or agency in place to take the goods, to house them, to inventory them, to disperse them to the, to the smaller points that for collection by the public. Agencies who are supposed to be leading this aren't even standing up. It's quite scary that, you know, yesterday alone, I got a text message from a person from our local council asking me if i had any water for them because it was a 45 degree day there's nowhere in bateman's bay that you can go and get water because the army have basically pulled out i keep taking a big step back and looking at this region and i i can clearly see through all the smoke that there's no leaders right now and no one is um managing this situation unfortunately
1: Matthew stepped into the gap.
0: So I took it upon myself to put it out on Facebook, ask mates for a warehouse space. And the idea for me wasn't, I'm going to, I'm going to take this on. It was well, I know we're gonna need more goods. So maybe I'll just see if a mate has a warehouse and I'll store a couple pallets and we'll see. I had two mates straight away said, yeah, here's, you can use my warehouse. Someone on Facebook said, "Yeah, there's a truck coming. I don't know where to put anything. So I posted, yeah, bring it to this warehouse. So I had a couple of mates meet me there and we unloaded it. And very quickly a, a truck driver contacted us. Hey, I saw that you were taking goods. Can you take another one? So I put it up there got another warehouse and then another warehouse. And it just grew so quickly. So we became very quickly known as the spot to go to, to get rid of goods. So we just reached out to, to more and more warehouses, uh, businesses all the way down the coast, Batemans Bay, Maria, Naruma.
1: Once it became known that Matthew was at the centre of things, outside groups started coordinating their help through him.
0: In the very early stages, mainly they were coming from Sydney and Canberra. Uh, a lot of them coming from Andrew Dell at the G-Spot in Canberra. He's a guy who's got a sort of big social media following. He puts them out. One Love South Coast, who's another social media group. They coordinate over Instagram, coordinate different drop spots, and then they get the goods down to us.
1: One of the first big organisations to make contact with them was the Bondi Surf Lifesavers Club.
0: Uh, I guess our connection came strangely because it, it was one of the very first deliveries that i got, actually somehow someone reached out and said, hey, we've got this stuff coming down uh, from Bondi Surf Club. And so I saw, so they came down and I'll never forget the girl who arrived. Her name was Peter. And uh, she was my first delivery person. It wasn't a big truck. And she was just in a little van, a Go Get van. There. And so Go Get guys have donated vans and unlimited fuel to the Bondi Surf Club that runs down to the South Coast. So basically she said to me, listen, I'm from Bondi Surf Club. Here's Brince, the president's number. So, this is all obviously, this is day two, and I'm a barista in Bateman's Bay. And I'm like, well, why is the president of Bondi Surf Club giving me his mobile number?
1: So, why did the president of Bondi Surf Club give Matt his mobile number?
5: Brent Jackson, president of the Bondi Surf Bathers Life Saving Club. So the bushfires is not in our standard operations, of course, and and certainly doing a massive relief operation wasn't in our standard operations. And in fact, when we looked at our charter, when we thought, is this something we can do? We we looked through it, and and it's kind of in our charter that we are there not only to save lives on Bondi Beach and also to work with our general community at protecting lives but also that we are to help support other surf clubs in their activities to protect lives. So, so when we looked at that, we could see that on the 31st of December, at least six of the clubs down in the south had actually wound up becoming evacuation centres. At uh, Malua Bay, they actually evacuated to the clubhouse and then had to evacuate the clubhouse when the fires got that close and so the lifesavers there were looking after around 4,000 people on the beach so we knew that the clubs down there wouldn't have enough gear for the process they were going through that we thought it was an important thing to try and reach out in our community here we thought maybe you know if we got a whole van full of gear it'd be great and we could send that van down to one of the clubs down there and help out a bit so that was you know <laughs> that was the uh the thought process behind it um but what actually happened was we put out a uh, we put out a post at about 3:42 on friday afternoon uh just saying hey we're going to collect some bits and pieces and you know if people want to donate you know, to help us with the South Coast Surf Clubs where we're interested. Um, And then we went to the pub. We knew that there would be generous people in the community who would come. We just didn't have any idea of the scale of of what was going to come, that's all. Went to bed and we woke up in the morning, came down the club about 8 o'clock to start setting up and by that stage we saw that something like 400,000 people had Liked the uh, liked the post, and 1.7 uh, uh, 1,700 people had shared the post, and our marketing head said, "Gee, you know, there might actually be a few people turn up today." By Saturday afternoon, the hall was full. We found a bit more room and we stacked some stuff there. and We thought we were going pretty well at the end of Saturday, um, <laughs> but when it got to Sunday. Um, It was probably five or ten times more stuff than came in on Saturday. So there were queues of cars all the way past the pavilion. You know, we were trying to shut at 3pm. We were still receiving some loads at 5 and 6pm. But the reality was the Sunday, we had to get very serious about getting the stuff back out because there simply was no room left in in the place.
1: People were donating both resources and their time.
5: We'd have people turning up who would just walk in, um, you know, total strangers walking off the street and say, how can I help? And we'd point them at a pile of things to sort, or we'd point them at a packing area or a boxing area or a palleting area, a loading area, and they would just go and do what they were told in that area.
1: This volunteer army became the basis of a major donation drive.
5: We had to start palletising and shipping everything by the Sunday. And so we got our first load out Sunday afternoon, uh, heading to Cabargo and we then got four more loads set up to go first thing the, the following morning. The reality is by Monday morning we had 120 people in the hall packing, sorting and structuring and we had another 40 or so out on the back loading and, and setting up loads.
1: At this point the fires had prevented the Bondi Surf Club from having any kind of communication with the surf clubs on the south coast.
5: We sent emails and sent messages and received no response. Uh, And the training we have as lifesavers is when you don't see or hear a response, you just act and you work the rest of it out after that. So that's what we did.
1: They sent their donations to the South Coast anyway and hoped someone could manage on the other end. It was at this point that Matthew Harcher met Peter.
0: She said, just text me or Brent any time whatever you need it doesn't have to be a big story just literally just type in what you want and press in so i just did that it was an amazing thing to see no matter what the request was what they were doing was putting on their facebook people were donating it they would instantly fill a vans because it's only a small van um they would then just have volunteers jump in and drive down it was amazing because there was there was cases like for instance a woman posted that all she needed through all of this she just needed some fencing for her pig her pet pig it's a bloody big pig but she lost all of her fencing and it kept getting away so i put in a request for fencing for a pig and 30 minutes later there's a photo from peter the first delivery driver at a um fencing shop loading fencing into the boot four hours later it arrived and that night we delivered it um Mm -hmm. so it, it was it was instantaneous fixing of problems and like I say, it's case by case. There's some people, that's all they need. Some people need a hell of a lot more. But since then, Bondi really, we've just had this great connection where they were always there for us.
1: And Brent and the Bondi Surf Club didn't stop sending donations.
5: We knew that what will happen is everyone will get gear down there for the first week, and that will solve the first week's problem, but then that stuff will run out and you'll wind up needing stuff in the second and third and fourth weeks, et cetera. So at the moment we now have two warehouses. One has uh, 35 pallets and the other has 45 pallets of supplies uh, that are being held and released to the clubs down south as they request them because they will probably continue to have needs for the next two or three or four months' time beyond this initial being
1: The organisations who were officially in charge on the South Coast were not able, for various reasons, to rapidly distribute relief. The Red Cross, who had fundraised more than $100 million, came under fire. The Red Cross Director of Australian Services, Noel Clement, defended the organisation's approach to distributing donations on Channel 9's Today Show.
6: What we are planning is phases of support for people. We've been raising money since July uh, and we've been supporting over 60,000 people since September in bushfires. So we've allocated $16 million to be committed to working in these communities for the next three years to support communities in recovery. And the balance of those funds is for future, further, immediate and longer-term support. We've allocated $30 million for immediate relief for people who've lost their homes and those grants are going out at the moment. They're $10,000 grants. Uh, we've paid 700 of those so far.
1: I think everyone understands that this is very complicated and working out how you get the money out. But, I mean, we are hearing people in the fire zones saying that they need cash and they need that cash now. So when you say that there's only 700 grants that have been approved and more than 2,000 homes have been lost, that's where people get upset that the money doesn't seem to be getting out fast enough and they need it now.
6: We're working through those applications as quickly as we can. Our average time is six days to get those applications through and approved. Understandably, some people are having trouble in the field being able to give us even the basic information that we're asking for to make sure that we're protecting against fraud, etc. Mm. So we're sending people into the field to actually work with people to complete those information. That information.
1: Matthew Harcher understands why these bureaucratic processes are necessary.
6: Those groups need
0: those forms in place. They need red tape. They need. Um, for transparency, you know, people don't want to donate their money and then, and then find out that the CEO of Red Cross gave us made $100 million. There has to be protocols. You know, the public asked for that.
1: But these processes did slow down aid delivery at a time when things were urgent.
0: Now the community don't trust them. They don't believe they're going to do the right thing. So they don't even want to go and talk to them. We are that linkage.
1: By acting fast, Matthew and his friends had built the trust. They called themselves Socodolo, the South Coast Donations Logistical Team. Once they had found storage space for the initial drive of donations, they began distributing goods to individuals, businesses and organisations.
0: It just became a very amazing machine in itself to watch. So we get rid of the goods as quickly as we bring them in. As soon as we find someone who's asking for it, it goes out. We understand that not everyone needs the same thing, so there's not a sweeping move of giving everyone $2,000 that's going to fix this region. There are some people who do not want money. They simply want a swag. Mainly, the people who come to us aren't the people who need it the most. It's the people who don't come to us. There's too many too proud people out there who are unwilling right now to accept something. So we go out proactively into those communities. We go to the community halls, to the RFS stations. We speak to people.
1: This new organisation partnered with more and more groups who are trying to distribute donations and goods.
0: The RSPCA, New South Wales and Victoria have come on board with us. Go get, find a bed. We supply the RFS. We top their goods up. We had an, an MOU with the Army between ourselves, Convoy Missions Australia and the Army, that we would be the supply of goods to them. So as they set their tents up, they would order through us what they needed. We would replenish their stock. So we just quickly became, instead of a couple of made to make coffee and uh, have a couple of warehouses to an actual distributor for the entire region. Now we have shipping containers in Boko, in Tobago, in Quama, and we send supplies to those regions as well to make sure that they're secure on sites and they're able to be dispersed in those smaller communities.
1: Soon they were making specific requests for donations, like they did with Bondi Surf Club.
0: We have a network, and, the, and it's a social network. So any, any goods that we need to get down from somewhere, we post it on Facebook, and we get someone in Sydney to collect and bring it to Wollongong, and someone there brings it down to us.
1: So why were these big organisations trusting this renegade group?
0: We are getting things done. We're getting goods to the people who need it. New South Wales RSPCA, for instance, they have no idea. They, they can't handle this either because they don't know where the farms are. They don't know how to get to the people. We have people down here who do know where these problems are. They send us people down here on the ground. We give them cases. They go and assess it. We work in partnership for the money to be channeled to the right places. We never touch any money whatsoever. We're just a group of people who try and connect the dollars that corporates want to spend to actual issues and get it done quickly.
1: Dolly volunteers were on the ground. Other bigger organisations who were trying to help couldn't always see the need from their helicopter view. But also being renegades... They didn't have to follow the rules that hampered formal organisations like the Red Cross.
0: And they would say, well, red tape makes sure that we're not getting sure. scammed. Sure. But what we say is, you get scammed and you have red tape. We know the people we're dealing with. It's never going to be a perfect system. We're going to give a generator to someone who probably got a generator off some donation somewhere else. But... Uh, it's, a, it's a much easier system when you know someone who lives on the same street as that person and we are in constant communication with the community. We have no money. That's sort our of thing. And we're not looking for funding for us. We're looking for, you know, for them to pay the bills. Like, you, want, you have the money. You have $2 billion sitting there. We know where the problem is. We can go out there and fix it. We just need you to pay the bill for it.
1: As inspiring as the Socodolo story is, it's taken a toll on Matthew.
0: Unfortunately, none of us are paid for the work we do. It's a complete volunteer. We don't take days off. I myself don't really sleep much. We don't want to see someone starve. So if it's nine o'clock at night and you finally get your mobile reception back and you're stuck on your farm and you ring me, you're going to get goods you know in the next hour. We're not going to let someone who lives near us in our community, go without water or food and and that i think has been the biggest impact on the community they see that we actually give a fuck you know like we're not clocking off at five o'clock i can't sleep if i know there's someone out there who's has no water
5: so what what kind of impact has that had on your your kind of personal life and your work life
0: (sighs) yeah it's uh, i'll be honest it's a huge financial impact i've um you know, myself, because of the fire, just personally haven't worked since, um, definitely since mid December. So that that's, that's been tough. Obviously, I've got a mortgage and a family with two kids. It, it has taken a massive toll on me. Um, you know, like I said, I haven't worked for six, six weeks. And realistically, I took the entire month of January off as soon as this kicked off because I just said, there's no way I can go back to work. This isn't around the clock job. There's been some, some tough conversations with my wife and, uh, but I just keep looking at it like it's 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 the best thing for the community. Mm. But at what point do, do you know? Do we say we just can't afford to keep doing it because we have to pay the bills? When am I going to get to go back to work?
1: Matthew realizes that while the lack of money was initially an advantage for them, in the long run, it could prove to be a curse.
0: I think the system we've got is working. We just are never going to have. Two billion dollars, or a million dollars, or a hundred million dollars, to keep it going. We're going to have to, at some point, rely on the agencies because our money is going to dry up. People are going to forget about this crisis. It's going to, it's going to, you know, there's going to be something else somewhere else, and and we're going to not have the the focus on us and the ability to raise the funds. Not one person isn't affected by this, and there's so many people still in shock and the trauma is going to go on for a long time. And this, this area is a low socioeconomic area anyway. It's very high unemployment for the state. So now we've got major job loss, major houses gone. Um, this is going to be a huge undertaking to rebuild this community.
1: And he wasn't wrong. This interview happened just six weeks before the coronavirus shut down Australia. For Zoe and Diane... Ventures like Socodolo aren't surprising.
3: Yeah, the community response has, been, response has been amazing. Just that everyone looks out for their neighbour here. It's quite amazing. When I went back to my house and my neighbours were hosing my roof, you know, I said, oh, we didn't know where you were. and It's just that kind of community. And everyone looks out for each other. As wonderful as this
1: community spirit is, the message coming from Batemans Bay is clear.
3: Well, clearly,
2: this is not going to be the last Mm -hmm. time we have this kind of fire, hopefully not in the same place, But and hopefully we can be more prepared and have more people and all that sort of thing to try and deal with it.
1: Of course, disasters come in all shapes and sizes. Even while the South Coast was still in recovery mode, a global pandemic started sweeping the world, confronting every community with some of the same challenges that the South Coast faced during the fires. While the lessons of COVID-19 will take decades to process, one thing that has been apparent in the opening months of the crisis is that many community services and charities haven't known how to step up to the plate. Large charities have been caught between their values, which say they should act to help the most vulnerable, and risk assessments that dictate they can't. The result has been an eerie absence of big civil society organisations in the response to COVID-19 the gaps that were exposed during the fires have been again made visible, this time across the whole nation. But underneath this, there is a powerful story of hope that we can take from the bushfire experience. In Wollongby and in Batemans Bay, facing overwhelmed or paralysed government agencies or charitable services, neighbours stepped up to help each other, protecting homes and creating pathways for donations. But these forms of renegade action came at a high cost that risked life and was hard to sustain. Surely there has to be a way to combine the community energy and knowledge of the neighbourly renegades with the institutional heft of the big agencies and state actors. Everyone trusted Matthew because he was a local and he built a team of locals that was connected across the South Coast. His spirit of connection connected him to people in other places, like Brent from Bondi Surf Club. It was connection that made Wallenbae work too. Everyone knew the mosquitoes because they hung out together in the local pub. For organisations, and most importantly our politicians who aren't that trusted, perhaps these stories provide a hint about what they are missing. Connection and relationships aren't hashtags or political slogans. They are a way of being in the world. A legacy of the 2019 Australian bushfires was the resilience of connectivity. Our big non-profits and our governments would be wise to take this seriously. Stop wondering why people don't trust you and start building relationships with those who are connected. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. This is Series 4, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. You can donate to the South Coast community by visiting www.socodolo.com. That's www.socodolo.com. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. These two episodes on bushfires were written by Mark Isaacs, with script editing from Amanda Tattersall and Charles Firth. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners, so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au/backslash-policy-lab. We're also supported by the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. Changemakers has a new weekly online training about community organising designed for these pandemic times. It focuses on relationships, building connection and the art of changemaking. Check it out on our website www.changemakerspodcast.org under the training tab.
0: mark pesci and i'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast the next billion seconds listen for free at podcast one australia.com.au search the next billion seconds podcast or download the new podcast one australia app
2: podcast one